It's not that they don't want to. I've never met a teacher that said, you know, I really want to fail some students today. <laughs> so it's important that we just go in with the mindset that the team that we have is likely to want to do better. They maybe haven't been provided the opportunity or the stage to be able to do that, right? Maybe no one has listened to them. You yes. know, they're really smart teachers saying really great things that aren't being heard. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. All right, today we've got a great interview for you guys. We are talking to Will McCoy and Reagan Rogers from Invo Healthcare. Right, and that I thought when I heard that title that it was like a medical thing, but it's actually an agency that works with schools and community-based resources to support education and mental health needs and other types of needs that schools have that they can't necessarily meet on their own. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that either. So they describe it really well and give us a little heads up about what they do and how they got into it. Yes. So, and Will's been an educator, like in the classroom, he started as a preschool teacher and then uh, and taught at different grade levels and then became a principal and then became a superintendent and then was called in to do what they call turnarounds when he goes into schools that are really struggling and help them kind of turn things around or go into districts and turn things around. So we're going to talk to Will and Reagan about some of the things that they're seeing from their vantage point happening right now that really will impact education as we move forward. All right, let's talk to them. Hear what they have to say. So today we have two great interviewees. We are getting to talk to Will McCoy and Reagan Rogers who both work at Invo Healthcare. Is that correct? Did I say that correct? Yes. Great. Can you guys tell us a little bit, introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got to where you are? Sure. Reagan, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure, sure. So my title as well. So just like go into the whole spill. Okay. Yeah. So I'm Reagan Rogers, the National Director of IMPACT, Invo Healthcare. IMPACT stands for Invo's Integrated Multidisciplinary Program to Address Childhood Trauma, which is an integrated approach where we address students who present with mental health or behavioral challenges, you know, and provide intensive interventions through an integrated model of support. So we bring together mental health experts and behavioral experts to support students at the school site, eliminating barriers to treatment for families, you know, with the goal that students will be in their seat as happy, healthy learners. I'm previously a school psychologist, professor of psychology, focusing on human development and child development. And we kind of came here seeing and working in transformational zone schools, you know, working, you know, with with school districts and in various districts across the country, seeing the intensity of behaviors and kind of a, a general lack of understanding or empathy for those who have faced childhood adversity and trauma and understanding that a lot of the behavioral concerns are manifestations of that. As we know, trauma 
and adversity is rampant in our country and maybe not talked about as often as it should be. And so I was super fortunate to join Embo's team and them, you know, creating this revolutionary program. And I get to do this every day. It's my dream job. So very exciting. Yeah, she's tough to follow. Um, (laughs) I'm Will McCoy. I'm the VP of Strategic Partnerships with Envo Healthcare. Essentially what that means is they asked me to come on. It's been about a year since I started. I came on to really help the company better understand the perspective of schools and school districts. I'm a prior educator. I was a teacher and then a principal, then a superintendent and 20 plus years creating programs and was very fortunate to work with some amazing teams. And together we earned some some statewide and California recognition. One of the, the highlights of my career was being invited to the White House to advise on equity issues with students and how to transform school districts. I was a turnaround superintendent. I was a turnaround principal. And more recently, I ran an international nonprofit, which was anti-bullying, anti for a couple of years. I've authored about four books. And when Invo reached out to me and said, hey, we, we need an education, I won't say expert, I'll never put myself in that realm, but <laughs> someone that understands education from the other side of the table that has sat in IEPs, that has made those tough decisions as an administrator, will you come join us? It was quite tempting. And so here I am. Well, that's really great that Invo thought about it from your perspective. So they've got both pieces. It's really smart of them. Well, they, you know, one of the the pleasures in working at this company is there's this vast team like Reagan of all of these incredibly smart people, great experts, expertise, and I get to play a little part, but then I get to say, and let me bring Reagan to a meeting, (laughs) all these other folks to a meeting because as a superintendent, you don't always have that, right? You don't always have this deep bench of resources, which is one of the reasons that Envo is so successful is we have this deep bench of resources. But yeah, I appreciate the fact that they said, you know what, we really want to better understand what schools are going through and how to approach the conversation in a respectful way to respect the work that's being done, but also build a bridge to what the the opportunities are that exist. And yeah, it's a pretty pretty cool gig. I can't complain. (laughs) Well, and Shannon took the words out of my mouth. I mean, it's nice to be able to have those resources. And so is Invo Healthcare, is that their job really looking at education or do they go outside of education? Right. There's two sides to our business and, and Reagan, please jump in if I miss something. So we have what we call our community side or our community clinic side. And then the second side is schools. And our school services is really where I'm focused, obviously. And we work with more than 500 districts nationwide. We're the largest, most comprehensive provider of mental and behavioral health services and supports in the United States. And so, yeah, I was in LA earlier this week speaking with districts on how can we better help? How can we we bolster what you're already doing to achieve the goals that you already want for students and really kind of you know, galvanize their work into a more effective plan. So we bring in the experts that districts don't always have the opportunity to provide, like BCBAs. Not everybody can find a BCBA right now, much less employ one, but we're really good at it. We have this team of- And BCBAs, tell people what that is. 
board certified behavior analyst. I almost froze there for a second. <laughs> I know all the education acronyms, uh, but board certified behavior analysts and incredibly specialized work and really cool people to work with, except they sometimes make you a little nervous. Like, are they analyzing or are they just, you know, I, are we just talking here? Are they using strategies on me? Wait. Right. So if a bell rings, am I going to respond? What what, is, what does that look like? As but, long as they have snacks at the end, I'm happy. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, and that's that's part of their job is to figure out what's reinforcing, right? And sometimes <laughs> for me, that is food. And so please bring it on. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm good with that. A milkshake and I will do yes, just about. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, so today we brought you guys here because this whole season we're talking about inclusion and we're talking about ways that teachers and administrators and educators, whether you're a teacher or you're a support staff, how we can really build inclusion in the classroom and what inclusion means. On our very first episode, we spoke with the authors of Inclusive Learning 365, and I love the definition they gave of inclusion. They said, inclusion is the act of creating learning that does not exclude anyone. And that's kind of what we're using as our definition because a lot of people think of it just for students on IEPs or students with significant needs. But we have so many kids in the classroom, especially post COVID and especially in a modern world where we're understanding impacts on students with socioeconomic status differences or maybe equity issues and diversity issues. And so we're trying to look at it very holistically. And so we wanted to bring you guys here. Reagan, you're going to talk to us a lot about how we really include those behavioral and students who have trauma or social emotional issues so that they can really participate. I know across this country, teachers are really struggling with behavioral issues post-COVID, partially because students were out of the classroom for a long time, but also because we all had a traumatic experience together and some students were highly impacted by that. Just the changes in their home life or maybe they lost family members. So it was just a crazy traumatic time for all of us. Teachers are traumatized, parents, students, we all are. And Will, we really are asking you today as you're here with us to help us from the administrative aspect of how do we make some shifts? How do we help people turn? And I read an article you wrote about social emotional learning and getting with staff and, and comments that you would make or questions you would ask them to help them shift that thought process. And so we just want to kind of hear about that today. So listeners will know kind of what's coming in this episode. And I thought maybe we could start Reagan with you talking a little bit about some of the things that you support teachers and educators with to create an inclusive environment that can really draw students in and engage them. Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. You know, and through kind of our, our integrated program, you know, one thing that really makes us unique, but also it's because of that experience and seeing teachers struggle is the generalization of skills right into that into the classroom. And so what we found in kind of our, our standard impact model is that we have a mental health expert, qualified mental health professional, licensed therapist, as well as a board certified behavior analyst that we talked about, that behavior expert. This very unique role called a behavior support specialist. And I think this is kind of relevant because what we take is we that behavior support specialist is taking the skills that the mental health clinician is working on, that the behavioral, you know, the BCBA is working on and helps to ensure that those skills are being actually employed in the classroom and reinforced by every individual on that 
on that campus, right? So not just the classroom teacher, but you know, the front office staff, you know, mm -hmm. every every stakeholder that the, the child encounters throughout the day knows that, you know, Timmy is working on, you know, some some deep breathing techniques when he gets frustrated, some behaviors that they might notice or observe prior to an actual, you know, maybe display of a challenging behavior. So making sure that everyone is aware of their goals and objectives so that that student can be reinforced throughout the day in a multitude of social settings and environments, and then especially in the classroom where they spend most of their day, right? So teaching preventative strategies, those foundational principles, the ABCs of behavior, you know, positive reinforcement, understanding functions of behavior, and those main four categories. Because when you equip teachers with this knowledge, they become their own level of like behavioral scientist, where they can determine and understand that this behavior is triggered by this. This is the function. What is a replacement behavior, or what is the team working on that I can teach them? Because the reality is that. The need for attention, escape, access to an item or a sensory need, that's not going to go away, right? So how do we address that appropriately? So I think by educating our teachers in those foundational principles of, of, of ABA, and we do that through, you know, another unique program, our ABLE program and a behavior coaching program that we have, but it's extremely important that teachers understand that because then it allows them to really problem solve within their environment. And when they learn those skills, it doesn't just, it's not just for one student, it can, you know, be utilized for, for students presently and in the future, you know, in their classrooms. One Naughty, of the things that you mentioned, Reagan, was you were talking about using some of the ABA principles. And I know that a lot of people in this country, whether they're, they have their students in public schools or private schools, have gone through ABA therapy in clinics or in a home setting. A lot of people have honestly had some very negative experiences with ABA. And so it's really important to help listeners know that we're talking about principles and strategies that work universally with students yes. and not the really correct autism spectrum specific ABA therapy where it's very structured and very rigid. But, and I think with ABA, and I think this is true of, pretty much any practice, so much depends on the practitioner, right? And Shannon and I work with, worked up in Durango with an amazing ABA therapist, Alyssa Clark, and she has just changed things profoundly for so many students by bringing in her take on some of this and, and using those principles, but teaching it in a way that isn't rigid or punitive, but more right. focused on the positive. So is that sort of what you yeah. guys do as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the focus is on reinforcement of those pro-social and, and positive behaviors. So the goal is that we're replacing any challenging behaviors with pro-social behaviors. You know, when it comes to, to ABA therapy, only those, you know, with that certification can implement those, you know, very intensive things, right? Like this is just those basic foundations of behavior that I think everyone you know, can benefit from in understanding how to just encourage the positive behavior and replace it with those pro-social behaviors. And that's through, you know, positive attention, praise, proximity, a lot of things that teachers may read on a functional behavior assessment that, that they may receive or have received support on by the district, but understanding that those strategies, you know, can definitely be applied across the board to all students. And even those students that may not be displaying 
those challenging behaviors may still have experienced some level of adversity. They may just have that resilience factor there that we want to continue to encourage, you know, as well. I think if I can just jump in, one important piece that we really try and reinforce is the generalizability of ABA principles, right? General yeah. education, administration, we're hearing of administrators who are benefiting from just that mental framework and structure of, well, okay, let's think about rewards and not always punishment. Being a vice principal is one of the toughest jobs on the planet and trying to, to deal with behaviors and all of that in a, in a thoughtful, positive way. General education teachers, you know, you mentioned ABA and autism. And a lot of people make that association, right? Because that is absolutely a direct application of it. But when you look at it in the broader sense, many teacher credentialing programs, admin credentialing programs don't include a very strong component that has behavior and behavior management and all of that. So we're finding the, the need. We, we build all of our programs based upon the requests of our clients. And sure. so they're saying, you know what, we need a better understanding of this. How can we do this better so we create ABLE, so we create our behavior coaching in response to the needs that we're hearing because behavior is behavior's a tough one, right? If, if we had that not a long time ago, things would flow so much more smoothly, but it's work every day with every human individually, right? And so it's simply a matter of how does it apply to my work in the school? And whether that's if I'm a paraprofessional that's supervising recess, or it's a vice principal, or it's a classroom teacher, and looking at behavior in a much broader, a broader way. Yeah. And I can I, just to add as well, like we, you know, one of our, you know, urban district partners, you know, we're conducting mental health workshops with parents and students actually on the same day, which is really neat. So the students are learning information, it's connected to the parents. And then we have like a dinner time conversation. So it allows them to have some conversations about the topics. And it was actually, we had our second session this week and the you know title of the webinar was, why do you do what you do? And part of that was, you know, a big piece of it was laying the foundation of understanding the brain and how, you know, our thoughts can lead to our emotions and behavior. And it was really, really cool because I started thinking to myself, had I learned that information as an adolescent to understand that I'm engaging in this behavior, there's a neurological reason, right? That that's happening. It allows you to be a bit more patient, understanding with yourself, give, gives that kind of early insight. And I think there were a lot of parents that were just like, I idea, you know, and this applies to me too. And I think the general thing, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit and it's something I, I bring up often is that like, we should learn about psychology much earlier than, than college. And it's really important for children to understand the connection between their brain and behavior and for teachers to understand that connection between brain and behavior, how, you know, childhood trauma adversity can rewire the brain and cause a lot of concerns and also developmentally appropriate, right? Like we know in adolescence that prefrontal cortex is still developing. A lot of those behaviors are absolutely normal for that population. How do we equip teachers with those tools that's developmentally appropriate, but also allow them to, to learn these strategies and be, a, you know, empathetic and understanding as they already are, but allow them, you know, to have those tools to be successful with all students as well. So. 
Well, and I think one of the things you just said, I, I feel like is very key because we talk a lot to educators, we talk a lot to administrators and students, but really families are key in learning and in managing social, emotional, and behavior issues because they are the foundation for these students. And so if we can find ways to create programs or connections with families where we're giving them tools and ideas, I think that is super powerful. Yeah. I think that that goes back also to, you know, you started with the question about inclusion. Mm-hmm. I think when we talk about inclusion, families yeah. is a big aspect that sometimes Absolutely. it's overlooked, right? Absolutely. And so I know that when I worked in Sausalito Marin City as their superintendent, that community needed to be heard. They they were, they had so much insight and so much depth and so much positive feedback that it was imperative to listen to the family and to include the family and to be thoughtful about the families as we try and find solutions for any school. And so, you know, when we talk about inclusion, I think community, I think families, as well as every type of student and everybody on the campus, mm-hmm. uh, because we, we get them for eight hours a day, the families have them the rest. And, and so let's, let's always remember that, that there are insights that family can, pr- families can provide, regardless of how, and I need to be very diplomatic, regardless of how well they're able to express it or the means by which they express their concerns or their thoughts. Sure. They are, I, I always told my stu- my staff, they are giving us their best students every day. They're the best children that they've got. And so mm-hmm. those are the ones that we're receiving and those are the ones that we're working with. And families are families want the best for their kids and they may not always portray it the best. They may not always explain it or communicate it well, but they genuinely want their children to succeed. And we have to listen to that vital set of voices. Well, in your experience, Will, going in to turn around schools, and when we say turn around, we mean that you were called in as a principal and then later on as a superintendent in situations where there was a lot of struggle and growth wasn't happening like it needed to, and they needed help to just kind of lift it up and, and turn things around. So tell us a little bit about some of the ways that you found were really successful doing that. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, it was an honor to be brought in. And uh, that's a lot of trust and faith for a district and for you know schools and families to put in you. And it's incredibly hard work, incredibly difficult work. And sometimes more political than anyone ever wants to, well, at least than I ever wanted to engage in. But yeah, I was brought in and they typically schools were academically underperforming. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a primary concern. And I know that, you know, we'll probably discuss scores and standardized testing and all of that as a later part of the conversation. <laughs> but uh, underperforming schools typically are first identified related to academics, right? I mean, they're, they're not performing well. The first thing that I want to say is teachers come to school to do a good job, right? I am always going to be pro-public school. I am always going to be pro-public teacher, educator, classified staff, administration. They're trying their best. And sometimes they're not provided with the resources. They're not provided with the structures, the understanding, the finance, whatever that is, to be able to be successful for those students. 
It's not that they don't want to. I've never met a teacher that said, you know, I really want to fail some students today. <laughs> so it's important that we just go in with the mindset that the team that we have is likely to want to do better. They maybe haven't been provided the opportunity or the stage to be able to do that, right? Maybe no one has listened to them. You yes. know, they're really smart teachers saying really great things that aren't being heard. And so I want to be respectful of that. So the first thing I always did was go in and kind of conduct a listening tour. And I would meet with all the different members of the staff and I would meet with the different parents and I would meet with parent groups. And a lot of times, if you are in a situation where a school needs to be turned around, those are very uncomfortable conversations, right? Because there's finger pointing all over the place. There's the blame game. There's all of that. But from the listening, you can begin to detect these themes about what are the real genuine concerns and what are the underlying issues. Organizing those listening tours is super critical because you, you can make no assumptions going in. The, the worst, some of the worst mistakes I made as an early administrator was to assume I had the answer going in. <laughs> I had the answer. I was hired to do the job and here I, here I was, you know, marching in to do my job and save the world. That's simply not how it works. Yeah. And so to set all of the ego aside and say, you know what, what is this particular group of students needs? What does this particular staff need? Because most often it's the staff that needs the support. And then that ripples to the student, right? It's not, I can't go save 600 students one by one, but if I can work with the staff, we can do it together. And so that teamwork, that collaboration, the ability to, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. So we're mm -hmm. gonna do all, our can all we can to do that. Many of the schools and districts that I worked with didn't have consistent structures. There weren't consistent expectations, measurements, evaluations all the data was was gobbledygook. And so what what are the basic things that we're all going to agree to? We're going to agree, agree to doing our best with these instructional strategies. We're going to commit to the following schedules and we're going to check in and see how we're doing. We're not going to play blame game. We're going to really just work together to, in, to impart these particular structures, behaviors, and expectations. I was brought in at Vista Middle School in Red Bluff Elementary. And our first like theme that we had it when I was principal was our time to shine. Mm -hmm. And nobody saw the school that way. That, you know, it had been almost, you know, beaten down in the paper and the community and like everybody had all this negative stuff. And so I was the, you know, the, the naive cheerleader that was like, all right, it's going to be our time to shine this year. But what that did was set the mindset right? The belief that people can do a great job and they want to do a good job. Our success that year was based upon the hard work of the staff. I, I, you know, made cupcakes and I cheered on and I led meetings and I did all of that. But all of the credit goes to the staff, both classified and teachers, when that happened. And we were recognized the following year as on the right track by the state of California, massive turnarounds. And it was simply coming in with the belief that everybody can do better, not because they don't want to or they're horrible people to begin with, but given the right resources, the right attitude, the right support, they can do better. Students began to believe in their school. The turnaround happens when people believe it can happen, and then you have reasonable, attainable goals 
that people can go after and you can have ego set aside intense conversations about how are we going to manage this mm -hmm. you know it does it's not a dictator role at all if anything it's a i'm gonna say a lifeguard you know <laughs> just uh you know <laughs> that teacher's having a hard day go jump in and help so it really takes that consistent belief that you can do better, the consistent application of structures, beliefs, and making sure that teachers have all the resources that they can have, right? Some are necessary, some are not necessary. But the fact is, if a teacher can prove to me that their approach is working and students are growing and learning and thriving in their classroom, I'm not going to be sitting on their desk wondering, you know, telling them what to do. I'm going to stay out of their way. And and cheer from the sidelines and and celebrate them. And it's that type of human to human, conversation to conversation, and optimistic belief that things can improve, and then being there when things get rough, right? I mean, just, just being a cheerleader is one thing, but when things get hard or there's a parent or there's an issue and there's a tough thing, you need to walk the walk and you need to really step up for your staff and you need to be the person that they know, wow, the last time the something went sideways, Will was there, the assistant principal was there, whomever was there to really attend to it. Because if your staff is afraid all of the time and they are afraid that they're not gonna be supported or they're afraid of something punitive, they will be less likely to risk on behalf of students. And so it's about that consistency and the the consistent support of the family, the students. And I walk to my classrooms every day. I mean, there's nothing more re-energizing than, than a classroom full of students that are learning and laughing and enjoying themselves in the classroom. Whenever I had a tough day as a superintendent, as in like negotiations or something like that, I, I would disappear from the district office and my executive assistant would always know he's going to kindergarten. Like, <laughs> I, and they'd find me later reading to kindergartners, like whatever it was, that was the release. And a good administrator, in my opinion, we should be grounded in that. We should be oh, grounded I think that's in awesome. that. Yes. It was I see a lot of administrators doing a lot of traveling and going to training and learning, you know, things that they need to bring back to their district, which is good. And there's a place for that. So I'm not trying to say that's not good. But I've also been in districts where they're gone every other week. And I think it's so powerful, especially when you're trying to create change. And especially in a time that we're in right now as a world, as a, in the United States, as educators, where we are having to make changes. And I think, like you said, telling people we can do better, it's not. And that's actually, that's our catchphrase at the end of every episode. We say together, we can do better because we know that it's something that takes all of us. And it's not better because what we're doing now isn't good enough. It's better because things are always changing and we're getting thrown curveballs and we need to be able to pivot and make changes. I can't say the word pivot without thinking of friends. I, I, <laughs> and Ross, so we do, yep. somebody needs to be yelling at us, pivot. But it's right. helpful to have those administrators in the classroom, making that pivot with you and really seeing what you're doing and, and giving that support you know, I, I watched teachers go through training and we talked with Dr. James Robinson from Indiana University and he goes around and trains districts and schools and teachers about how to begin using inclusive practices. And 
in the training he was doing that I was present for, I felt a lot of just, it was tangible in the air, this kind of prickliness from teachers, like we already do that. We're doing, you know, and this defensiveness, and it broke my heart because I know that comes from a place of feeling like I am busting my butt trying to do a good job. And you're not seeing that. You just keep telling me everything I have to change and throwing new things at me. And as soon as I get good at it, you've got something new for me. And so I think when administrators can get in there and listen, like you said, that is so powerful just to be heard and told, I, you know, I hear you. I see what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing. And then encouraging those teachers that you're going to be present with them. You're not always going to be gone. You're not always going to be throwing new stuff at them, but that you're going to be there with them. Those feel like really, really good principles to me. Well, the other piece is you need to be a good instructor, a good teacher before you become an administrator. You need to have the credentials and the credibility in the classroom where if my chemistry teacher got pulled out for an emergency, I said, I've got your room. They know that they're not going to come back and everything's going to be in shambles and the kids are going to be on the tables and things are going to be blowing up. You need to know that, no, I was a strong educator first. And because of that, I have this opportunity as an administrator, but I, I can hold my own instructionally, right? I was a statewide trainer for California Reading and Literature Project, for California Writing Project. I, I know what I'm doing in a classroom. And so to to be able to do that and have a conversation with a teacher is very different than someone who plays administrator that can't hold their own in the classroom. You know, until we have people that know good classroom instruction and are trusted for that and respected for that, there's going to be this politicalization. You know, you you see superintendents that are in it for the whatever. I, PR opportunities exist, <laughs> yeah. but when it when they're in their district, I hope to goodness they know what they're doing and they know how to, they know good instruction and they know good behaviors. They know how to work well with teams and how to be good leaders because their teams need them. So yeah. with, when you're home, be great. Well, in relationship, yeah. whether it's teacher to student, teacher to parents, parents to administrators, you know, all of those different relationships, I think at the core of everything, including having good equitable practices, having good inclusive practices starts with building relationships. And I think as administrators, when you go into a classroom, when you offer that support, when you listen to the parent, when they're frustrated or the teacher, when they're at their wits end and just ready to break down, when you really give them your time and build that relationship, I'm here for you as much as you know, you're know you here for me, that is at the core. And we're trying to teach that to students. We've got to model it. Right. Well, and, and not only that, I mean, I mean, let's get down to being a good, genuine human being, which yes. is tied to all the mental health, all the behavioral health. That's one of the things that that brought me to this company. It's that you know, we're all humans first. And I may, I may not get you to do 2.7 grade levels in reading, but if you have a high ACES score and we're able to give you the supports on Maslow's hierarchy to be able to get you to where you're ready to learn, that's progress. And that's progress that's not necessarily measured anywhere else, but that humanity 
and that gift of being an educator, yeah. it starts there, you know, and people, people's, I'm going to say BS meters work really well. Yes. And teachers have seen it all. They've seen the pendulums. They've seen a million administrators. They have seen the parade. And so when you come in and you're a genuine person, there are still going to be barriers. There's still going to be resistance. There's still going to be defense mechanisms with teachers, with, you know, crosswalk guards, with everybody on the whole campus. But the fact is, we really need to believe in what we do. And that's why I think Reagan's team is so exceptional, is that they live and breathe this. They want to help kids that are struggling. Like, yeah. let's get to that. Let's get to the, how can we help this kid who in many situations has not found success? And it's not because they're a bad kid. Right. It's because they need some things. Reagan, do you, you know? Yeah. No, I, no, definitely agree. And I think just, you know, as we talk about, you know, the the prevalence of any like ACE scores or, you know, concerns with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the reality is, I mean, when you look at the country as a whole, teachers and there's teachers in that in that classroom that themselves have experienced that adversity, you know, and, and, and trauma. It's it, it's common and it's all of us, right? And so I think, you know, when we talk about ACEs or Maslow's hierarchy of needs or the school need kind of modification of that, you know, there's so many things and, and foundational building blocks that that really need to be there before we can really have a student tap into that learning potential, you know, and that could be related to you know, physiological needs, making sure they have breakfast and clean clothes and a and a home to go home to, all the way to clear, consistent, safe school environment, clear, consistent rules, expectations, understanding that and feeling that it is a safe, predictable environment, and you know, building upon that to their confidence. They need to feel empowered. And that hierarchy of needs doesn't extend just to, to students. I think for for teachers, they need to have, you know, that clear expectation. And I think like, Will, when you mentioned like understanding and setting those goals and objectives, when you've got a lot of data, you know, what are measurable things that we can work towards and what are the strategies and allow them to see that data show, like allow them that visibility into their data as educators to say, I'm making progress in this because we know that works for students. That's <laughs> going to work for them as well, you know, so. That was a conversation we just had recently with one of yeah. our other interviews that yeah. none of us likes to hit a wall, right? No, we all no. need reinforcement. We all mm -hmm. need positive wins to keep going and to feel like we're doing good. So absolutely, gosh, teachers may be even more so. And especially post-COVID and our first season, we talked about how teachers really found themselves in a first responder role that they weren't really ready for. And that in itself was a burden and traumatic for them. And so a lot of teachers are tired and exhausted and they're just starting to really feel like they're getting back in a groove this year. And we need to make sure that their needs are met as well. And when you talk about ACEs really quick, Will, what is ACEs? Adverse childhood experiences. Okay. Just for yeah. listeners so that they're clear when we're using an acronyms. I don't want them to be like, what are they talking about? <laughs> so, so when we're talking about ACEs and we're talking about looking at those situations, I think what's interesting when you're saying from an administrator perspective right. that 
we do look at schools and say we kind of give them a report card based on grades and scores. But sometimes, I mean, even if you think about, we just interviewed Sam Carey from the new EdTech classroom, and he was talking about universal design and looking at it as if you were building a building. And I think you almost need to do that same perspective with what you're talking about. When we are building a new house, it takes a long time to get, you know, to get all the plumbing put in underneath and then get your foundation laid and come and put in the framework. And so you may not see the house as a house for a while. And I think when we talked with Dr. Andrew Ho from Harvard, he was going back through standardized testing and we asked him about the annual standardized testing. Why do we do that? Where did that come from? What's the history from that? And he said, as Americans, we got to a place in the 70s and early 80s where we were saying, are the teachers really teaching what needs to be taught? I don't feel like my student is getting what they need. And so as a people, as a nation, we put this standardized testing in place to give a report card saying, did the teacher do what they were supposed to do? And I think just even that framework is stressful for teachers because they are trying to do what they're supposed to be doing. Every state has standards. We have national standards. We do this standardized testing where we're looking at specific things and teachers are trying to teach to that. And they feel so much stress to teach to those standards that sometimes they miss those good opportunities for making sure the kids' needs are met or building in that social emotional skill of, I see that you're frustrated and this is how we can work it out. Or let's work in a team. And even if you're not friends with that person, you can work in a team or own your own learning by being able to be reflective on what you learned. Did that work for me? Did I get what I needed? And so some of those skills were kind of missing on a national level because we're so focused on standards and standardized, standardized testing. And when you said, maybe the biggest turnaround is starting to really hit that ACEs and those foundational things with Maslow's laws of how we kind of look at that hierarchy. So if we could kind of shift, you know, if as a nation, if we could shift our thought process and start thinking about it from that perspective, and if we're teaching kids how to own their, and we're using student-driven or student-centered practices where they're doing reflections and they're coming back and saying, this didn't really work for me, but I could do it this way. And maybe doing student-led conferences, or if we're doing some of those things, parents could see that they were learning and gaining skills. Maybe we wouldn't need to pull kids out of classrooms for multiple hours a day, for multiple days a week, for multiple weeks, and spend billions of dollars on standardized testing. <laughs> and well, we can have a different report card. <laughs> absolutely. We wouldn't do that to adults, right? right? There's no, at 25, we're going to all assume you have the same preparation, the same emotional state, all <laughs> of the, you know, everybody's doing the same thing, prepared in the same way, and we're going to give you all the exact same test, and then we're going to decide how our nation is doing. Right? <laughs> It's ludicrous. And so to assume that every student has the same resources, has the same preparation, has the same language skills, has the same emotional state, all of those things, and then measure a school by only that, I absolutely believe academics are important. So I don't want to, you know, diminish that. But the fact is, we're building human beings, and human beings are more than test scores. And so to be able to get kids ready to learn is really what, what I'm passionate about, Reagan's passionate about is 
giving them the capacity to be good humans and good citizens and express themselves well, regardless of, you know, whether or not they're doing algebra. Right. And so our whole piece and what we're hearing from districts across the United States is our K-3 students right now are struggling with behavior. Like the pandemic and them being away and distance learning and all that. These are kindergartners, for goodness sake. They <laughs> developmentally, <Your favorite. laughs> my favorite. I would be in that classroom, but well, I started off teaching preschool, so that, <laughs> wow. that kind of sets the whole That's thing. Awesome. But the fact is, we're, we're now asking kids to behave in such a manner that they were not trained for, don't have a good experiences for, and don't have structures and and regulation for. So we're hearing K three behavior. What we're hearing from the older students, middle school and high school, is the mental health challenges and the impacts of the lack of socialization, all the screen time, all of those other impacts. So our work, the I mean, we're having fascinating conversations nationwide in that we, we need to work on humans first and we need to support our teachers. You don't see many, if any, articles right now or news reports saying, oh, my goodness, look at what the U.S. education system was able to accomplish and pivot in three years, right? Nobody's doing parades for teachers that were actually able to adapt and give Zoom lessons, and and they accomplished so much. It's, you know, oh, well, our NAEP scores went down two and a half percent or some ridiculous thing. That is so short-sighted. Yes, it, it's an easy, you know, tagline for a news report. But the fact is, our teachers and education system weathered a pandemic. Yes. And are we a hundred percent back yet? No. Do our kid is everybody still recovering from that? Absolutely. But the fact is, nobody's mentioning and celebrating that we are losing superintendents. I mean, it's something like forty percent of the superintendents are planning to leave in the next three years wow Um, this has been a stressful time for everyone and nobody's celebrating the success there but more importantly let's take a breath as a country and say what do our kids need you know they need behavioral support they need mental health support we -hmm. need to regain our humanity our connectedness and learn again i'm never diminishing that but the fact is we need to equip our teachers with the, the ability and, and arm with them with the ability to address the humanity first and the academic second. The academics won't come if we don't address these other pieces. Yes. So it's a matter of priorities and investing in humans first, students academics second, in my opinion, versus demanding academic success, knowing that you have problems. That's like taking a a car that's a jalopy to the Indy 500. It doesn't make (laughs) sense. Let's get the car running first before we expect it to perform at a high rate. Absolutely. Well, when you look at the worldwide testing, standardized testing that they do to see how educational systems in other countries are doing, and the U.S. still hasn't broken into the top 10, I think it's really important for us to understand in this country that they're testing the problem solving and critical thinking skills. And that comes from in large part, that social emotional support of learning how to problem solve. If I don't know how to do calculus, 
and there's a question here that's calculus and there's multiple choices. What skills do I have to maybe eliminate some of the options and kind of narrow it down to the right answer? Because that's what they're saying on a worldwide level are some of the most foundational skills. And that comes from that humanity piece that comes from learning just problem solving and how to self-reflect and how to drive your own learning and say, this is where I'm, I need more support and being able to make mistakes. And I, I hate to call them mistakes, but those learning opportunities where you do something and it doesn't go the way you think it should go and being able to come back and say, you know what, that didn't go the way I wanted it to go. How can I do it different? That is huge. And right now it's punitive to make a mistake or to, you know, have that learning opportunity. So it's so great to hear so many people. We talked with Doug Fisher, Dr. Doug Fisher from San Diego State, and he was saying a lot of the curriculum that has assessments built into it that are digital that can give us analytical data very quickly is starting to tell us reading is turning a corner. We're starting to make gains again. That is positive. People need to hear that there's good stuff happening. Right. I, I think education is not great at PR, right? <laughs> We're just not. I mean, you go in, you do the work, you love your students, you do your best, and then you do it again the next day, right? No, in the first place, nobody has time for great communication in PR. And that's not oh. something they train district offices for. You know, I love the fact that there are organizations that are public relations agencies for, for schools. For education because schools schools deserve celebration and they don't get it back to your point about the standardized testing in the us and the top 10 there's some research out there that says when you factor for poverty safety mm-hmm. second language learners all of that that the united states actually scores quite well in comparison to other companies nice so it depends on again, which, which research you're looking at, healthcare systems, access to food, food deserts, all of those other extraneous factors that may or may not exist in other countries. I mean, when we're going against Finland, right? I mean, Finland's usually in the top, you know, at the top. Yeah. They've also been ranked the happiest country for the last six years running. So they're doing something right. And I think we should look at all the things that are making them happy. And I bet it's not just education. Right. Right. And so let's, let's do an apples to apples when we're, when we're looking at us education, I would pit, frankly, any of the teams that I've worked with against any teachers internationally, there are amazing people in the U S doing incredible work and we don't give ourselves enough credit. I think that's true. Give us really quick. I'm going to ask you first, Will, and then Reagan, you'll get a chance to say this. Tell me the top three things that you think schools could really focus on right now to make some big gains. Well, I, obviously, I believe in mental and behavioral health, period. I mean, let, let's, let's address the fact that kids are struggling and communities are struggling and teachers are struggling. Mental and behavioral health, absolutely. I also believe that we have to look at equitable funding models in the United States. The fact that, you know, you may get 23,000 per student if you live in the Northeast, and you may get 13,000 if you live in California. The the funding per student, it's out of whack. And how do we expect, you know, standardized performance when we're not standardized in our funding? That, let's also take a look at that. I also think 
you know, there, there's a lot of discussion about AI and all of the pieces and how scary AI is for education and all of that. I think that when we have, you know, people are worried that students are going to do essays using AI. Yeah. And, you know, students have been using Google for years. Let's just start there. But yes. beyond that, I truly believe in the power of writing. And I, as a as an ex writing teacher, I'm going to stand on this little stump and 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 you know testify for a second. But <laughs> critical thinking is best expressed through writing, and it can be taught very well. And there are great studies that the intensive teaching of writing can greatly enhance student academic scores across the board. <laughs> and even writing in science has shown to have the highest impact upon long-term learning. And so there are lots of opportunities that, let's take a look at the research and say, what's really going on? I love, I've been doing a lot of reading recently about this, the science of reading, right? I mean, it's being touted as a major new trend now. And what it is, is let's take a look at the data and see what works. Okay, that's great. Take a breath. This is the, I wrote an article in a blog post in 2020 during the summer. And it was about, this is our opportunity to do education right, because <laughs> we are re-entering the classrooms. We will be re-entering education as a structure and system and all of that. Can we do a reset? Can we, can we do this right this time? Can we look at the data and consistently apply a few things well to, to do better as a nation? I know there are some others that kind of, that kind of agree with it. But the fact is, I think that we need to really not be as reactionary. I believe in strategy. I believe in planning. And I believe in the power of teachers and public education. That powerful discussions about students who have received good development, who have received mental and behavioral health supports. You know what? This is a new era in education. And I think we have the opportunity to get it right. And mm. so that that's you know that's why I come to work each day I think we can help more kids in a better way absolutely Reagan yeah so all great agree with all of those one of them I'm gonna have to steal naturally but I do feel <laughs> mental health of course but I do think you know the the first thing that the kind of come or the first three that, that came to mind specifically is looking at those foundational pieces I think I'd recently watched a TED talk. I like I shared it with Will is that one kind of undervalued resource is a family's love for their children in the public education system and to tap into that. But I think we also need to understand that as, you know, an economy, as a country, there's a lot of families that are struggling. And, you know, when in a previous experience working in an urban district and transformational zone, they had like a really unique aspect of their transformation or turnaround program that was somewhat of a like a systems navigator role. And it educated families on, you know, knowing how to access and, and understanding the education system as a whole as their child navigates through, but also connects them to community-based resources to focus on that poor Maslow's hierarchy, nutrition, you know, they provided the families with, with meals to get them through the weekend, you know, if need be. Also supported in financial literacy and supported families in, in providing, you know, intensive kind of sessions with them to support their, you know, financial planning, you know, and focusing one on those foundational pieces 
tapping into, you know, the family's love for their children, their desire to be nurturers and providers, and ensure that we're creating, you know, that, that foundation for students. So, you know, in turn, when they come to school, you know, they're happy, they're healthy, they're fed, and they feel, you know, we're kind of, they feel empowered, comfortable to be in the environment. So I would say that would be number one is tapping into that. I would say too, obviously mental health, we know it's extremely important. We also know that mental health and behavior are married, right? It's cognitive behavioral therapy and its success in treating so many things because that's what it, what it does. And, you know, I would say the access piece, you know, when we talk to districts across the country and even in our impact program, all we hear is barriers, barriers, barriers. And so making sure that families that need mental health are able to get that and eliminating those barriers so that they have access to those resources, you know, ideally on campus where transportation is not a concern, you know, there may be the fear of concern of insurance or medic, you know, providing families mental health services, your child needs these intensive supports, you may also want to, to, you know, receive any sort of family support and integrate that into the school environment to where those barriers are, are no longer there. Because again, amazing community-based providers, those referrals are met, but are those students or children getting into that office, receiving those services consistently with fidelity, like we know that it needs to, and then are those skills being applied in the, in the classroom or in social context outside of that four wall of office, right? How, how does that, how does that work? So I think focusing on eliminating those barriers. And then I would also say, you know, and it kind of leads to, and I'm kind of going up the hierarchy as well is consistent, predictable environments. I think it's extremely important. And I think these are all things that, you know, are able, you know, you're able to put in place is ensuring that there is an environment where the students feel, you know, vulnerable in the positive sense to make mistakes. I know like when you were mentioning the student that was doing algebra, you know, wasn't able to complete that too, is that they can communicate that it's not, we're not getting to the standardized test and realizing they don't know it, but in that moment, they feel that it's a safe environment to make mistakes, to not know, and to ask questions. But I also think that when we're talking about a predictable environment, it also means that everyone is understanding of the unique challenges of their developmental age. And I think, you know, there's a, a big difference we know in child development and, and all the, you know, psychosocial development, but also in cognitive development. So ensuring that they were providing interventions on their that are developmentally appropriate but also them understanding that everyone on that school campus, CrossGuard, anyone that they interact with has an understanding of those pieces and also is safe and caring and has an inviting nature so that when they're on that campus, they feel safe. So I think those, those three pieces, kind of looking at tapping into the family's love for their children and navigating systems and support, supporting mental health, eliminating those barriers, and then ensuring you know a predictable, safe environment you know, would be the top three that I could think of. It's nicely done. Awesome. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Well, that, that was on a whim. That wasn't on the, that wasn't on the list. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't stick to the list today. We, we yeah, cut yeah. Off, that's okay. <laughs> me on my toes. We always try to think ahead of what we yeah. want to cover, but then you get into a conversation and you hear people's, yeah, like their skill set and where they're coming from and it just yeah. sort of shifts. So yeah, we no, that appreciate was good. so much you guys <laughs> being going with the flow yeah. with us and giving us your time today. 
we these are great resources and for anybody listening definitely in the narrative you'll find links to this information and connections so that you can reach out to will or reagan if you are looking for some supports for your school or your district we have a great episode coming up very soon we're going to be talking with dr posse salberg from finland he is going to be sharing with us some of the things that we were even talking about today so that'll be great this is a great segue to that <laughs> so all right, guys, thank you so much for coming. Any final words before we wrap up? Just, you know, thank you for having us. Of course, it's a, a pleasure to be able to have a platform to be able to express our support for students, express our support for staff, and, and to celebrate the, the things that are going right in education. Education takes too many hard knocks, and so it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to to advocate for my colleagues and everybody working hard on behalf of kids. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you, no, guys. It's an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed today. Thank you. Shannon, any final, final words? No, I'm just glad that you guys were able to join us. And I think the conversation went in a great way. I just, I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Well, thank you, guys. We thank appreciate you. your time. That interview was kind of different than what we had originally planned for, but that's the tricky thing when we're in advance trying to set up questions and stuff and we think we're gonna kind of go one way, but then there's just a natural conversation that happens and we got some really cool information that we hadn't even planned on. Yeah, I don't know that it's tricky. It's, it's actually kind of great, right? Yeah. To go a different direction than you think and just get different information. I think that's almost, what's the word I'm looking for? An example of kind of what's happening across the country right now in education. Like we think we need to do all these things and sometimes we just get steered in a different direction. It's okay to go with the flow on that because it was good. It was great. It was wonderful talking with both of them. And I know that their company and their programs that they're working on are really passionate about helping educators get back on track and really make some of those significant changes to support their students and their staff. Well, and it goes with some of the common themes that we've had with all of our interviews, right? Like families are really important and key to making changes and keeping kids engaged in school and happy and healthy and ready to learn. Yeah, they're just, it just reiterated everything that we've been talking about. And it brought back so much from season one about that social emotional piece yes. and how foundational it is and how much educators across the country are, are challenged with that right now. It's, it's still a thing. Like we're kind of getting back in a groove, being in classrooms and doing our thing, but it's still an issue. And it may be something that moving forward lasts for a long time. We really need to consider it and include it when we're thinking about how to best make change and positive growth. We're almost to the end of this season. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is. So what a good season it's been, man. I feel like I've learned a lot. Yes. I definitely feel like I've learned a lot from all of our interviewers, interviews. Yes. Yes. And I think that we're really figuring out some themes, like you said, that are happening for people across the country in different areas of expertise. We're seeing some of those same themes. And one thing that as we're getting deeper into our season that we're starting to hear as a theme, which is cool because we do our interviews, they're spread out. So even just the time that we've been doing these interviews, we're seeing this hopeful, things are starting to kick in, things are starting to really work, rise to the surface. That's awesome. People need to hear that. We are starting to make change. We are turning this Titanic. 
and it's good. There are positive things. Yes. All right. Well, I think I'm pretty sure next week is Sam Carey with the new EdTech Classroom. We did his interview before Will and Reagan, but it's actually coming out in the series after Will and Reagan. So he's coming out next week. That was such a great interview. Unfortunately, Shannon didn't get to be on for the whole thing, but such a good conversation and so many realistic classroom-based, this next episode is for you teachers. It is for you. So tune in, listen in. Oh, he gave such good information and was just a wonderful interview. So that is next week. Shannon, together Together, we we can can do do better. better. All right. We'll see you guys next week. You don't want to miss Sam Carey and the new EdTech Classroom. Bye.